And now it is our opportunity to allow our consciousness to be expanded, uplifted, and inspired by our own Reverend Patrick Cameron. Good morning. Welcome. I think we need a retractable roof. I've said it a few times, but I'm just standing outside. It's much too nice to be inside today, as far as I'm concerned. We'll have fun. I guarantee it. I think we're already having fun. So, welcome. If you'd like to stand, I'm going to sing a song. If you'd like to stay seated, please feel free. If you'd like to just keep dozing comfortably as you are now, go right ahead. I'm going to sing a song and say a prayer. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear or spirit one spirit is in this very room in this very room in this very I invite you to know with me in this moment, allowing my words to be your words. There is one power, one presence, one infinite divine presence in and through and as all of life, in and through and as each and every one of us. There is no spot where God is not. And in that recognition, in my understanding of my union with that idea, I know that each time I choose it, it chooses me. So this day I choose it with the expectancy and the humility and the joy and the surrender and the beauty and the love and understanding whatever there is for me to know in this moment it is made clear for I dive into that conversation I live my life fully and completely and I continue to wake up each and every day so that I may continue to share my gifts to develop and nurture to share and to be of service and so I give thanks this day I give thanks for this beautiful spiritual community that honors all the traditions that we have put down the boundaries and understand that God is here for all of us And I give thanks for this day, for the gifts, for the joy, the celebration, the music, and the silence between the notes, all of it perfect. For this I give thanks. I release these words knowing every good thing is conspiring in every good way for myself and for you in agreement with these ideas. For this I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is. Please be seated. Thanks. Anthony, great song, man. I I could just go home. You said it all in the song. beautiful. So we've been using Janine Roth's book, Women, Food, and God, and and I really love this book. This book has been a gem, and we've done it for about two months, and we've got a study group going with it. And uh, this week, uh, my sharing is entitled, Those That Have Fun, and the other half of the chapter I didn't include in that because it's way too long to put on a disc, and those that don't. So those that have fun and those that don't. So how many here have fun? All right. Okay. Most. And how many don't have fun? Because that's okay, too. That's a that's okay, good. So we have some of both here. 
So the whole idea around that is that there are restrictors and there are permitters. And this whole book is around this idea of, of food. And I want to share with you, uh, and, I, and it's really about any, any obsessive compulsive behavior, but in this particular case she's talking about food. It could be alcohol, it could be an emotional state, it could be rage, it could be anger. Um, I know that none of you have ever participated in any of that, but I'm talking about the people that you know out in the world there somewhere. So she begins this chapter by saying that my favorite diet of all time was the cigarette, coffee, and diet Shasta cream soda diet. She said, Bob was a prominent psychologist, and he told me about it one summer when I was a sophomore in college. Bob, who once weighed over 400 pounds, was now exultingly thin because of his new invention, the all-brown diet, smoking three packs of cigarettes and drinking 12 cups of coffee a day. Wow, I said to Bob at a restaurant where I was stuffing myself with popovers slathered with butter. He was, he was natch drinking coffee and making perfectly round, muted gray smoke rings. Finally, a way to be thin. Bob bounced his head vigorously, doused with enough caffeine to run a nuclear power plant. His physical movements verged on manacle. His feet stamped as he talked, his hands cut circles in the air. And then he said, it really works, Janine. I've lost more than 200 pounds, and the best part of it is that there's never a mess to deal with. There's no chewing to con contend with, there's no dishes to clean, there's no plates, there's no silverware. Anyone, anywhere can be thin on this diet. And so the very next day I went on the all-brown diet with the addition of Diet Shasta Cream Soda, which was my own unique brown twist. I stayed on the program for three weeks and lost, as you can imagine, a great deal of weight. And since I never slept, I also accomplished many heretofore daunting tasks, <laughs> like reading the Count of Monte Cristo and knitting an Afghan. But it wasn't only this program that I greeted with enthusiasm every time a new eating regime was brought to my attention, the fried chicken, only diet, the one hot fudge Sunday a day diet, and the all grape nuts diet, I stepped up to the challenge with enthusiasm, even reverence. I loved being told what to do. It made me feel that someone was in charge. Someone had assessed the situation, understood the mess I was in, and discovered the answer. Protein, pasta, raw food, nightingale droppings, it didn't matter. I was willing to forsake this week's, this week's diet for its polar opposite next week because someone said so. I found great comfort in believing that if I could only be faithful and stick to the word Salvation, peace from the relentless self-hatred that I believe was causing my fat thighs would be mine. So I think it's a really, it's a funny story, but it's also very true for so many people. And one of the reasons that I was called to this is that, uh, in terms of sharing this with you, is <clears throat> she talks in here, and I think this is so true, especially for women in our culture, because we, we tend to objectify things. And objectification is simply the process of making someone an it rather than a human being. And it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to do it with other cultures. And she quotes early in the book in a chapter called Ending the War. And Anthony's song was so appropriate this morning for this idea of ending the war. She said that so many perfect girls, uh, quote from Courtney Martin in the Christian Science Monitor, so many perfect girls were raised entirely without organized religion. And the majority of the rest of us experienced spirituality only in the form of mandatory holiday services with a big-haired grandmother. Overlay our dearth of spiritual exploration with our excess of training and ambition, and you have a generation of godless, godless girls. And I think it applies to men as well. Raised largely without a fundamental sense of divinity, in fact, our worth in the world has always been tied to our looks, not the amazing miracle of mere existence. And I think it's really easy to fall into that trap because 
so much of the popular culture, so much of the advertising. You can't turn on a television or open a magazine and not see, see some model that is quite thin, quite beautiful, quite touched up in the photograph. You know, Oprah always laughs at the pictures they do of her because by the time they get done, done doing it, she just says, you know, it's not even me anymore. But it's, a, it's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting icon to ascribe to, and I think it's very easy to get caught in that trap. And what's important, I believe, for all of us to, to remind ourselves is that we're far more than this physical form. And this is a wonderful book. It's a wonderful map of how, for all of us, we can come into balance and come back into love with that possibility. Carl Jung, who's one of my favorite authors of all time, I, I still want to, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall the day that Carl, Carl Jung was a student of Sigmund Freud. They had a falling out. He was the one that brought to our awareness the idea of archetypes, that we all have certain archetypes, that all of us have a, a certain commonality in psyche, and there are certain archetypes that we all identify with, and some we play out more strongly than others. But Jung, at one point in time, said, I'm done with electricity. I would have loved to have been there that day. And he moved off. He built himself a home or a, a room, a, a tower that he would go and contemplate, and he would nurture his soul there. But what he had to say was the unrelated human being lacks wholeness. The unrelated human being lacks wholeness. And that in itself speaks to the idea that when we are not connected to the, to the, the true essence of ourselves, our job here, I believe, our opportunity is to wake up and to continue to wake up. And every day is an opportunity to wake up a little more. And if we're waking up to our lives, we're actually following the path that many of the great avatars talked about. When, when Jesus of Nazareth came along, his was awakening, and his was a continued awakening. And he would dive into that deep and un, an abiding relationship with spirit. He called it the Father. He actually called it Abba. He referred to God as Abba, which means Daddy. In, in Aramaic, he spoke. But it was an intimacy that he felt. And so when we're unrelated, it's it, but when we're in connection with that, we're in co connection with that divine self in our heart, our, money, our, our body, our mind, and our soul. The unrelated human being lacks wholeness. He, uh, Jung continues, for he can achieve wholeness only through the soul, and the soul cannot exist without its other side, which is always found in a you. Wholeness is a combination of the I, this, this connection with spirit, the I and the you. It is the integration. It is that integration of the I and the you. And these show themselves to be part of a transcendent unity. And that is the opportunity. So whenever we get caught in these ideas supported by the false self, and I think Janine speaks to it so beautifully in this, in this book, so it's about the food, but it's not about the food. It's about this transcendent unity. And wherever we bolt, she talks about bolting, when I was 17 years old, I applied for it, and I've, I've spoken to, to this a bit, but I've actually been writing about it because I'm putting some of this in a book I'm working on. When I was 17, I, was, I applied for a scholarship to go to a program called Outward Bound. And Outward Bound was, they were all over the world. There were, I don't know, 25, 30 different uh, places you could go. And I'm not sure. I haven't checked it in years, so I'm not sure what they're doing, if they're still around. They're probably around in some form. But it was really an opportunity to be immersed in an environment for a month. So I went for 30 days. And it was progressively challenging oneself and removing uh, things, uh, creature comforts for sure. And uh, we lived in a, what they called a brigade, which was 12 young men and myself. And we had two probably late 20 leaders. Uh, one was actually a Canadian. And he was a medical student. But anyway, at, at the end of the Outward Bound experience, 
you do a solo. And so we spent three nights and four days in a, we were actually in the Boundary Waters, just, I believe we were actually in, in uh, southern Manitoba or, or Ontario. I, I think it was Ontario, actually. We were very close to Lake Superior. Anyway, um, but what happened there for me was I was certain I had never camped in my life. We had, you know, we had 11 kids. It was like a campground at our house all the time. But, you know, some people got in the house to sleep at night. Some didn't. But I'd never gone, I'd never gone camping officially. And so you, you get to go camping. And, of course, in that environment, you need mosquito netting because you are, you know, you're food for, for millions of mosquitoes. But I was certain every sound that a bear was coming to eat me. They put me on this island. And so for four days and three nights, I didn't sleep at all. And I kept a fire going. And I found the, the biggest swingable piece of wood I could protect myself with because I was certain every time I heard something that, that there were, the bear was coming. And a couple of things happened there. Um, I kept a fire going, and I had started this fire sort of on this mossy area. And just as the, and these guys would come by once a day, and if you were okay, they, you'd put this, this little orange flag out to let them know. So the guys that were supervising would check on you once a day. And, and so just as they came by, the fire that I'd started on this mossy ground had just ignited, and this tree started to go up. And so they came over. It was perfect timing. And I didn't know what to do. I'm, you know, I'm cupping water in my hands and running 25 yards trying to put this thing out. So they, came, they tore their, their pants and shirts off, and they immersed them in the lake, and they just started slapping these trees. And we finally got this fire out. And this is about the second, the second or third day, and I'm exhausted. And we got this fire out, and I just, I just, I was so terrified and sad that I almost started this forest fire to burn down this, this amazing environment. And so that was sort of the start for me. It, it put me over the edge in terms of exhaustion, and I really felt a great deal of shame and sorrow about the possibility. And I also felt very grateful that these guys came along when they did, because who knows what would have burned. And that evening I was keeping... Now I moved the fire out to the, this, this big rock, because I wanted to keep that... And they gave us one match. So if the fire went out, you were out of fire. One match, a little bag of salt, a fishing line, and a hook. And I fished for four days and never caught anything. Although one night when I was sleeping, lying by the fire, keeping it going, wide awake, listening for bears, something crawled in behind me, and I was certain. Um, it's, a, it's a rattlesnake that has uh, climbed in, and it's nestled itself against me. So I laid wide awake for, I don't know, maybe six to eight hours, not moving, anticipating, because I wanted the daylight, so I waited till the sun came up, and then it was a toad, and if I had a, had I had a recipe for toad, I would have had toad for breakfast that day. <laughs> But what happened uh, the last night I was there is I started to hallucinate. And I started to have these hallucinations. And I was talking to people I hadn't talked to in years. And I was having these conversations. And I thought it was the, this one of the, it was surreal. But it's interesting how you can kind of drop into that when you haven't been eating and you haven't been sleeping. And so what happened for me was that particular event really opened my eyes to the ideas most of my life to that point was based on fear. And most of my life, the stories I'd made up about my life were just stories. It became very clear to me that I lived in a very fearful, small idea. And that here I am for four days and four nights because if a bear's coming, a bear's coming, you know? 
And, and in fact, there was no bear coming. You know, I mean, it, the incidents of somebody being harmed by a bear in that environment are almost non-existent. But the story I made up. But it was such a powerful metaphor, and I got done with it, and it wasn't as if a bright light came up. Jesus did not appear to me and say, you know, you are healed. But what it was was an awareness about all the fear that was running and running and running in my mind and all of the anxiety and all of the things that, of how I lived my life was amplified, and I didn't have an environment to bolt. I didn't have a television to turn on. I didn't have somewhere to go. I didn't have something to go by. I didn't have a way to distract myself. I was simply there with myself. And it was one of the most profound experiences, 17 years old, one of the most profound experiences I ever had in my life, and it, it opened me up to a different possibility. And I was asking for that. I was asking for that. It, started to ha- it, started to, it inspired me to start asking some questions. One of my, my favorite poems is by David White. He says, sometimes if you move carefully through the forest... Breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests. Conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere, request to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. And questions that have no right to go away. So as much as I'd like to tell you that there was a complete revelation and healing in that moment, there was a shift where the question started to become clearer to me. And to start asking myself, is this a life I want to live? And am I making a, am I making a difference in my life and the lives of others? And at that, it was that inquiry that began to, to start there. So our worth, she has a wonderful, wonderful sharing in here about, about our worth and how we measure it and how we come to these opinions about ourselves. And this was sort of what happened to me that day. And I think it's true for all of us. So I want to share this with you. Because this is the last, this is the last week I'm going to use this, this text. She said, When I f- first realized that my entire definition of myself, who I took myself to be, was basically a figment in my parents' imagination, I was both stunned and elated. I had been get- convinced of my own worthlessness for so many years that I'd stopped questioning it and grew like a tree twisting over its deformities. I think it's easy to do that because that is our earliest influence. Our parents do the best they can. My parents did the best they could, and I know that. And, and the things, one of the things that Caroline Reynolds used to say frequently, Caroline made her transition last year, but she would say frequently that the things that we didn't get as children become the gifts that we give as we move along. My mother kept telling me, kept, spent years telling me I was selfish, and it, and it was upon the nub of information that I built a monument to deficiency. But as I widened the myopic gaze on I, me, mine, I saw my mother at age 25 with two small children, a loveless marriage, and a desperate need to have a different life. With the little information she had and doing the very best she could, she called me selfish for wanting more than she could give. We give what we can give. And isn't it interesting? And I can relate to this message. My, my mom with kids in both arms and steering the car with her knees and my brother working the brakes for her. It was, she was always busy. With the little information she had and doing the very best she could, she called me selfish for wanting more than she could give. And since I would have died for her and since every child needs her parents to be right, I took myself to be the sum of her limitations. I saw myself through the eyes of a lonely, depressed, troubled woman and never questioned my loyalty to her vision. 
And then there was my father who saw me as a ditzy, dumb blonde. Add ditzy, dumb blonde to selfish, fat, unlovable, and you have who I took myself to be for almost 50 years. Psychologists and spiritual teachers alike call this learned version of ourselves ego or personality or false self. It's false because it's based on inference, not direct experience. It's false because if your idea of yourself is based on who your mother took you to be, and her idea of herself was based on who her mother took her to be, which was based on who her mother took her to be, your idea of yourself, the, person's who feeling, the person whose feelings gets hurt, who takes offense at being criticized, who is wed to her opinions or preferences or ideas, is based on those of someone you never met. But isn't it interesting, the lineage, if we track it back? I mean, because our parents were trained by their parents, and their parents were trained by their parents. And this is all good and perfect. It's not a bad thing. It's not, go home and burn their pictures. It's just about awareness. It's just about bringing awareness and bringing light to it. It is about, as Gung said, the unrelated, the unrelated human lacks, being lacks wholeness. The unrelated human being lacks wholeness. Talk about a great hoax, she continues. You are, you are not who you think you are. Hardly anyone is. And as I share with you my outward bound experience, I realized I'm none of this stuff. And I didn't want to be scared. I realized how frightened I was in my life, in my own skin. And it was such a wonderful, it was terrifying. But it was, it was beautiful at the same time. And I thought there's got to be a way to live a life that's happy and wonderful and successful and loving. And that was not particularly modeled for me. They didn't have the luxury of that. And so to wake up to ourselves, and it's not to dishonor our parents. When we put that legacy down, it doesn't dishonor them. They plowed the ground for us to have the opportunity now. If we want peace in the world, we have to have peace here. And how can we have peace here when we keep telling ourselves the same story over and over again? As if spiritual practices, the more I can beat myself up, the better I'll be. It's insanity. It's insanity. Our inclination to bolt. And, when we, when, and so we do that. And she talks about that. We do that in our everyday life. We do that. We have the opportunity to do that through, with food, with alcohol, with emotions. Hundreds of times a day. And I've been watching myself. You know, since I started talking about this, Samara, well, who, Samara's uh, Von Rad. That's her new stage name. Samara's working our, is putting together our young adult group. And so Laura and I, uh, when they did the Songs of Old Strathcona, Laura and I went over a couple weeks ago and we went and listened to... Um, Brian McLeod play, and then we went over across the street to a restaurant. We walk in, who's ser- serving us but Samara? And Samara had been there that morning. And I'm looking at the menu. And I said, Samara, what should I get? And she says, well, based on your lecture this morning, I would suggest the lettuce wraps for you, young man. <laughs> so it is. And they were delicious, by the way. And I said, I'm so impressed that you were paying attention, Samara. So we were in the New Jersey um, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, Laura and I went to New York and we went and did a retreat at the Omega Institute with Elizabeth Lesser. And so when we got there, we stayed in New Jersey because it's a little less expensive and it's 15 minutes from downtown Manhattan and the train is right there, so it was beautiful. And we found this restaurant the first night. We asked, we're within walking distance and we walked over to this restaurant called Don Pepe's and we thought, this will be great, it'll be Mexican food. And we walk in, it's all Italians. And they set us down and I'm looking at the menu and they had a Kobe pork chop. And I thought, a Kobe pork chop? I don't know what that, that would be. Obviously, you know, I know Kobe beef, and I think it's, it's grown and bred in, in Japan and all this. I'll try a Kobe pork chop. 
And Laura ordered this, this fish dish. And there's two of us, right? And, and, and they had a salad that we'd ordered, and it was delicious, and we enjoyed it. And this guy brings out this plate, and it was like a 12-inch plate with two of the largest Fred Flintstone pork chops I've ever seen in my life. They were, they were cooked at least two and a half inches thick, and they were at least that big around. And then Laura, who's wherever she is, you know, 95 pounds and four foot ten, they bring out, she ordered fish, and they bring out these two fillets that are just humongous. And we just looked at this, and I thought, holy cow. And then they bring out a plate, another plate, with potatoes, this boiled potatoes. They were cut in half, all peeled, and there were like ten of them on this plate. And we, th- we thought, who's going to eat all this food? And we had nowhere to place it, but I, I looked at it, and I thought, isn't it interesting? And I looked around the restaurant as people were being served, and I thought, it's amazing the mindset that we walked into this environment. Here I am doing this book about how we can bolt by you know, becoming so overstuffed, we sort of, we get sleepy. And so it was, it was very interesting. Lauren had, and I had this uh, very interesting experience because I, I actually ate one pork chop and the other one I couldn't even get near, no potatoes, and she had half of a piece, she had a quarter of the fish. And it was interesting because we both felt this sense of you know, here's this food, and people are, and we had no place to take it. We didn't have a refrigerator back in the room, and where are we going to go, and should we go find a homeless, you know, all the stuff you think is someone could use this food. And interesting in the book, like Janine, Janine says about that, this mindset that we must eat everything on our plate. She said, you know, you, it's either going to get, that food is either, well, it, hopefully it could be shared in an ideal situation, but that food is either going to get wasted. You're either going to put it inside yourself, and it's going to be wasted, or it's going to be not eaten, and it'll be wasted. And so this idea of, of divorcing ourselves or putting down this idea that we have to clean, be the clean plate club, because in our family, that was it. Food was the, the form of affection. We didn't hug. We didn't say nice things to one another, but we would eat. We had enough food, but that was, that was what it was. And so food meant love. But it was interesting to look at the portions. She called home and talked to her son, Max, and said, you wouldn't believe the size of this pork chop. It was huge. I should have taken a picture of the pork chop and put it up there for you. It was amazing. But it gets wasted one way or another. And so one of the things she talks about in this beautiful book is the guidelines around food, around consumption. She talks about how important it is to have meditation. I have meditation in our lives. When we have a solid meditation practice in our lives, wonderful things can bubble up for us into our awareness. But when we don't have that, there's no possibility to that conversation. It's what David White is referring to when he talks about this idea of tiny, frightening requests. If we can't hear that, or if we're not willing to hear that, we miss that whole conversation which guides us and leads us. That, the outward bound experience for me was so profound because I had nowhere to go and I had to sit there and I was just there in the fear. And I didn't want to be fearful. I didn't want to be scared. I didn't want to be eaten by a bear, bitten by a rattlesnake, and die at 17. All the things I was making up. Somebody else would have had a great time. I'm, I'm there staying up all night trying to burn the forest down and worried about a rattlesnake bite me. But it was such an, uh, an awakening. It was such an awakening. It was such a gift. She, she talks about the guidelines. She said, eat when you're hungry. Eat when you're hungry. But be mindful when you eat. Stop eating when you're not hungry anymore. It's pretty simple. How many billions of dollars are spent on diets? I mean, I'm liking this cigarette and coffee diet, but I'm not doing it. 
eating sitting down in a calm environment. This does not include the car. Eating without distraction. Distractions include radio, television, newspaper, books, intense or anxiety-producing conversations or music. Eat what your body wants. Eat until you're satisfied. Eat with the intention of being in full view of others. And eat with enjoyment, gusto, and pleasure. It's all doable, all simple stuff. But we carry all of that domestication from parents. We carry all of those ideas with us. And those are all well and good. But it's time to put them down. Famous Zen master once said, There's no right, there is no wrong. But right is right, and wrong is wrong. Food as matter turned to spirit is a direct connection between the physical and the spiritual, between what we put into our mouths and what we feel in our hearts. It's all the same. It's all related. It's all related. When we love something, when we love something, we honor it. When you care, when you have something in your life that you love, you care for it. And we talk about putting down this blame and shame of self. When we love ourselves, we care for ourselves. We honor ourselves. We get enough rest. I have a beautiful guitar I bought about a year ago. And I always take great care with it. Because I love it. And it brings me great joy. She talks about this experience of God in this book early on. And when we find something in our lives that we love... Follow it back to its source. I was, Anthony's got his new baby here, a month old. Now, I'm sure that when I, that idea is alive for you right now. Because, but when you follow that love back to its source, you find God. Because it's all God. If God is everywhere present in and through and as all things. But it's, it's what's important to us of what we love. And it's such a powerful experience. When you're around someone, Rumi called it the open secret. We, we're not hiding who we are from one another we think we have secrets they're open secrets you know when somebody's suffering you know when somebody's angry you know when somebody's lost you know when somebody's confused and you know when somebody's on fire with life and they've got a passion and they want to make a difference in the world and they're willing to do the work they're willing to put down the things are you willing am I willing to put down the things in my life that restrict me from, from living the fullest and most beautiful experience possible that's what we're really talking about at the end of the day here The Sufis, who are the lovers of God in the Islamic tradition, we're the lovers of God in the Christian tradition, by the way. I love that definition of our movement. We're the, we're the drunkards for God, as, as Jesus was. He was a lover of God. He was love of that Father within that doeth the work. The three journeys of the spiritual path, the journey of God, the Sufis call it, number one, the journey of God, number two, the journey to God, the journey from God, the journey to God, and the journey in God. The Sufi's version, the journey from God, is the one in which you believe you are what you do, what you weigh, what you achieve, and so you spend your time attempting to adorn yourself with external measures of worth, a thin body, a big bank account, cool patent leather shoes. Since even thin, rich, and famous people get old, have cellulite, and die, the journey from God ends in disappointment 100% of the time. Guaranteed money back. According to the Sufis, the next journey, the journey to God, is also fraught with disappointment. You try to stop the endless stream of thoughts and they keep playing their crazy tune. You decide you're going to stamp out judgment, evil, anger, hatred, and you find yourself wishing your next-door neighbor would accidentally slip on a banana peel and die. 
you find a spiritual guide who seems to be the embodiment of wisdom and purity, and he ends up sleeping with 16 of his flock. The third journey, the journey in God, is the same in both the Sufi tradition and in the path of food version. And in this journey, you end the search for more and better. You no longer live as if life is a dress rehearsal for the next. Authentically, not trying to be good, begins to infuse your actions. Authenticity, not trying to be good, begins to infuse your actions. And through practices like the eating guidelines, which are in the book and I just read to you, meditation and inquiry, you slowly realize that you are already whole and that there is no test to pass, no race to finish. Even pain becomes another doorway, another chance to recognize where love appears to be absent. It's here right now in and through and as each and every one of us. And so when you forget that, direct this infinite intelligence within you to remind yourself and you bring you back to that. And so it is. Blessings. Blessings.